Our king is coming. That was the declaration that we heard from Matthew last week as he began his gospel. He told us through his genealogy that the true heir of the throne of David had come and his name was Jesus. The child of promise that the the whole of the Old Testament had been preparing us for had arrived. And as we move into the next section of chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins to tell us of the actual birth of this king and the circumstances surrounding it, the somewhat surprising circumstances surrounding the birth of this king. What would you expect from a royal birth? What would you expect to happen around the arrival of a promised, long-awaited king. Surely, if we were writing the story, this king would have been born to very important people in a very important place. He would have had the, the finest of clothes, born in the finest of palaces with the finest of doctors, the, the best the world could have afforded him. Surely this is the way it would have happened if all of our hopes are tied to him. The closest thing I think that we have to think about is the, the birth of a baby in the royal family in the United Kingdom, right? All the pomp and circumstance, the press, the, the glamour associated with that kind of, of royal birth is what we would expect if we were writing the story of Jesus. But this story is different because this king is different and this kingdom will be different. And the beginning of this story sets the stage for what God will do and how he will do it in this new kingdom through this new king. Let's read about these surprising beginnings in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25. And I want you just to, if you can, Set aside what you think you know this morning and try to read this very familiar passage with fresh eyes and hear it read over you with fresh ears so the Lord can speak something new into you this morning. Here's what the Word of God says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called 
his name, Jesus. You know, when we first read the the story of the birth of Christ, the beginning doesn't sound that different from what we read in the genealogy last week. There's some controversy surrounding the birth of Jesus and specifically surrounding Mary. Mary, who, remember, is included with four other women in the genealogy of Jesus, and all of them have rumors of sexual impropriety surrounding them. And so as we arrive to Mary and the story of Mary and the coming of Jesus, it seems like what we read, that the brokenness that we saw in the genealogy of Jesus is continuing again. And we think, well, maybe God can redeem this once again because he redeemed it in all those other situations. Maybe God can redeem the brokenness of Mary as he did the other women that we talked about last week. But Matthew wants us to know that something very different is happening in the story of Mary. Something very different is happening here, probably to address some rumors from critics that have been talking about Jesus being an illegitimate child. No, Jesus wants us to know, uh, Matthew wants us to know, Jesus is no fruit of human sinfulness. No, he is the fruit of God's sovereign action. And in a beautiful piece of writing, Matthew allows us to be informed specifically about what God is doing in and through Mary from the perspective of Joseph. You see, Joseph is in the dark, as we are until we read what's happening. And he remains in the dark until God speaks into the situation. God sends an angel to Joseph to say to him, what you think is happening is not really happening. If you remember the story of Luke, God had already revealed this to Mary, but Joseph did not know yet. He says to Joseph, I know the situation looks one way, but here is what is actually taking place. God is fulfilling a promise, a promise he made hundreds of years ago through the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 7:14, when he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign of the coming redemption of the people of God. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, Joseph. Mary is that virgin, and her son, Jesus, is Emmanuel. Can you imagine the surprise of Joseph? Surely this is a surprising turn of events. In a moment of reflection, he's encountered by divine revelation to move him from disappointment to worship. To move him from despair to radical obedience. Joseph moves from the prospect of divorce in a moment to the prospect of raising the Son of God. It's incredible how when God speaks, your life can suddenly turn in unexpected ways. And both he and Mary play a vital role in God orchestrating the salvation of his people. You know, what I was struck by as I was reading this passage this week, trying to to think about it in the context of a whole series and not in December, was all that God reveals about himself in this text. 
all that, that God reveals about the way that he works in this text to bring about our salvation. Yes, I mean, Joseph may be the, the main character on the page, but remember, the whole story of the Bible is God's story. And what's ultimately happening here is he is, he is giving us foretastes of the way that he will orchestrate miraculously his salvation on our behalf. And just like with the themes that we encountered last week, these actions of God will be seen over and over again throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So let's consider for a moment from this passage, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, what God reveals about the way that he works for our salvation. Three lessons I see from this text about the nature of God's work. I'm going to give you all of them, and then we'll talk about them one by one. Lesson one, God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, to bring about our salvation. Lesson two, God unveils for his people what they cannot understand in order to grasp the work of God for our salvation. And lesson three, God has orchestrated the most glorious plan in his son to save his people. The ultimate work that God will do, he will do through his son, Jesus. Let's consider all of these lessons about the nature of God's work for our salvation this morning from Matthew chapter 1. Remember, it's going to be exposed over and over again to us as we read the Gospel of Matthew and honestly as we read the entirety of the Bible. Lesson number one, God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. As we said in the beginning of our sermon today, we would have had very different expectations around the birth of a royal child, the birth of a king. We would expect them or him to be born to special people in special places. But Mary and Joseph were not super special in terms of what we read in the, the text. They're not well off. They're not well known. They don't have palaces. They don't have notoriety. They're just normal Jewish people struggling to make a normal Jewish life. Joseph has this carpentry business, and he probably thinks his life will revolve around that, and he'll just have a normal Jewish family and support them from his normal Jewish carpentry. But then everything changed, and this normal Jewish family were plucked from obscurity to do something of enormous importance in the work of God's salvation. They were called to bear and raise the incarnate Son of God. This ordinary family suddenly is front and center in the story of redemption. And it feels very shocking at first until you realize this is the way that God has been working all along, right? Think about David, the, the one who established the throne that Jesus is the heir of who sat on the throne, that Jesus is the heir of. Think about David himself. He was a shepherd boy, remember? His own father didn't think he was kingly material. And so when the prophet comes to say, hey, Jesse, from your line, there's going to be a king. Let me see all your sons. He didn't even think to call David because he was so ordinary. And yet, from a shepherd boy, God brings about the greatest king in the history of earthly Israel. 
before Jesus, of course. Isn't that the way that God always works? He takes what is surprising and does something surprising through them. The people of God themselves were this way. They were not an extraordinary people. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, 7, God says, I chose you because you weren't great. I chose you because you weren't mighty. I chose you because you weren't numerous. I chose you because you were the least of these to do something extraordinary through. Listen, God works. This is a truth about the entirety of the way God has orchestrated our salvation. God works in unexpected ways and through unexpected people to do extraordinary things because when he does that, he gets the glory. There's no question about who is orchestrating this salvation. There's there's no accounting of man that could make sense of what God has done for us in the gospel. In fact, God uses surprising people to make sure that we are awed not by the men or the women in this story, but the God who is using them for his divine purposes. I've been watching the PGA championship this week a little bit when I have some free time. And, you know, I love golf, but I'm really terrible at it. Anybody relate? I mean, I like to play it. I am really bad. And, you know, there are times I get out there on a golf course, and I've got the same ball, and I've got the same clubs. But for some reason, I can't do with the same ball and the same clubs what Phil Mickelson or Tiger Woods or Jordan Spieth or Brooks Kepka does with that golf ball. I mean, I'm watching them, and sometimes they end up in places like I end up, like in the rough or in the trees, behind a tree. And what they can do with that ball is extraordinary. And when I try to do the same thing with that ball, typically what happens is I hit a tree and the ball comes right back and hits me in the face. It's amazing what someone who is a master at something can do with ordinary objects. And that golf shot says a lot more about the golfer than it does the club or the ball. Ordinary club, ordinary ball, but extraordinary golfer. Now I want to think about your own life. In this scenario, you're the golf club or you're the golf ball. On your own, you can't do much. On your own, you may be ordinary, but when you're in the hands of a master... When you're in the hands of God, who is orchestrating the entirety of the world toward his desired ends, there's no limit to what he can do through you. In fact, he may want to use you in your ordinariness to accentuate his glory. And what a beautiful thing to be used by God in that way. He wants to surprise us. And what he uses and how he uses it so that we can be amazed by him. Not the instruments, but him. And we say things like this. If God can do this, what can't he do? If God can use them, who could he not use? If God can save them, who could he not save? If God can redeem that, then who can't he redeem? When we, we marvel like this at the work of God, it, it ensures that we turn to him and worship him for the salvation that only he could write.
This is an encouragement, right? I hope this is encouraging to you. As you, as you read from the very beginning, as Matthew's talking about this kingdom, the surprising kingdom, the surprising king, I hope it's, I hope it's encouraging to you to see from the very beginning the type of people that he uses to accomplish his purposes. Ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We may say that we're ordinary, First Baptist Church of Irving. We're an ordinary church, an ordinary town, in an ordinary state. I know it's Texas. You say it's the greatest state ever invented. But it's, you know, it's, there's not much to write home about. And yet... It may be that in this ordinary people, in this ordinary place, in this ordinary church, God does something extraordinary. Not because of who we are, but because of the God who holds us in his hands. God has always worked that way to bring about his plan of redemption. And he continues to work that way today. Lesson two. Not only does God use ordinary people to do extraordinary things, God unveils for his people what they cannot understand in order to make sure that we see his saving work happening. When God works in extraordinary ways, sometimes we can miss what he's doing. Because we're not looking, because of our sinfulness, we're blinded to that reality, or because we assume it's something else number of things that can hamper our ability to see the redemptive work of God. But what a gracious act of God for our benefit that he will let us know not only what he is doing, but why he is doing it. So that we can see God's saving work on our behalf. One of the most important elements of this story is Joseph's encounter with the angel in a dream. And we'll see this several times over the course of Matthew, and certainly through the entirety of the Scripture. If the angel had not come, everyone would have assumed the worst about Mary. Who's going to believe the Holy Spirit did this, right? If the angel had not come, Joseph probably would have divorced her. And even if he had done it quietly... Even if he had done it in a way, like he planned on doing, that would have tried to protect her reputation, she still would have been shamed. She still would have suffered great shame because of what this assumption would have meant for her. But because God spoke into that ignorance, Joseph was able to see the glory of God on display. Because God spoke into that unknown, we are able to see the work of God on display. Joseph can know that what has happened here is actually not an offense to God, but the direct result of the work of God. He can see how this is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to his people to send them a miraculous son who would free them from their greatest enemy. And what's happening now is the fulfillment of that promise, the fulfillment of that sign. Emmanuel has come. And Mary and Joseph are able to withstand the attacks on their reputation because God has so clearly spoken. What a gift 
revelation is for God's people. What a gift God's unveiling of himself and his work is for the people of God. We would never know all that God has done. We would never know all that God is doing for us right now if he had not spoken into our situation. But now, because of the faithful work of the Holy Spirit and the saints who have come before us, we have a record of the redemptive work of God. We have an unveiling of the entire exercise of God to bring about salvation across redemptive history so that we can look back from the moment of promise, even from the moment of creation, and see how God has been unfolding his plan leading to Christ and pointing us to a reality when he will return to finish what he began. All those things we would not know if God had not unveiled them, revealed them to us. But now, through the work of his word and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, we are able to see what we could not see otherwise and be moved by it. The glory of God that it reveals to a place of salvation. And when we know what God is doing, we can be bold as we come in alignment with what he is doing. What I'm really surprised by in this passage, a number of things, is the boldness of Joseph and Mary. Joseph did not do anything to try to cover up the work of God. I want you to think about that. The very end of our passage today says that He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. You know what could have happened is something like David tried to orchestrate when he slept with Bathsheba, where he called her husband in to try to cover up the real source of the pregnancy. Remember that in David and Bathsheba's story? That could have happened here. In order to protect the reputation of Mary and his own reputation, they could have sped the process along, gotten married, and tried to cover up what God was doing. But because Joseph knew what God was trying to accomplish, because Mary knew what God was trying to accomplish through the work, the supernatural work surrounding this birth, They made sure they didn't try in their own understanding to cover up what God was doing. And even if people didn't believe them that this was the Holy Spirit, they were willing to put their reputation on the line because the work of God was worth it. See, Revelation does that. When we are able to see what God is doing, even when people around us don't understand, it allows us to be bold. Because... We want the extraordinary work of God to be seen in the midst of the ordinary. We want him to get the glory. And if it takes us suffering a little bit of shame in the process in order for him to be elevated, in order for him to be made much of, then we're willing to do that because we see more than other people around us see. And we're hoping that in the evidence of our faithfulness, God will use it to help them see what they have not yet seen. 
Lesson three, God has orchestrated the most glorious plan to save his people through his son, Jesus. God works in the ordinary to do the extraordinary. He unveils so that we can know what he is doing and why he is doing it. And ultimately, God is working for salvation through his son, Jesus, a most glorious plan that we begin to see unfolding in greater ways in Matthew chapter 1. Because God has told us what he is doing, we get to see the beginnings of his glorious plan to save us in Matthew chapter 1. All of this, all of this that's happening here is part of God's plan to save us, to redeem us so that we can enjoy being with him. Do you know there was a time when God with us was not the greatest prospect in the world? In fact, if God had revealed himself in his fullness to us in all of his glory, according to Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, it would kill us. And yet something different is happening here. There's a, there's a transition that is happening in the incarnate Christ where God with us suddenly becomes an encouragement. And he is using this work through Christ to make it happen. So that we who were created to fellowship with God for all of eternity can actually have access to him once again. God will send his son to come and dwell among us. And we will behold the glory of God the Father full of grace and truth. When we see Jesus, we will see fully human, fully God, God, man. And he will reveal to us our God in ways that we could have never imagined before. And he will faithfully represent us to God in his humanity. Jesus will save us as only he can. And in Matthew 1, we see some of the elements of why Jesus is the unique Savior that we've been waiting on. You see, the virgin birth is a centerpiece for Christian theology. Don't let anyone ever tell you the virgin birth doesn't matter. It matters. It is central to our belief. Without the virgin birth, the saving work of Christ upon the cross is insignificant. Jesus is unique. He is the God-man. He needs to be fully God and fully man to accomplish the work of salvation on our behalf. He's got to be fully God. Because only God can wear the weight of God's wrath as he did upon the cross and its span throughout the entirety of human creation so that every single person who comes under the work of Christ can be covered by it regardless of whether or not they lived in the time of Christ or not. He needed to be God to accomplish the work that God worked through him, but he also needed to be fully man because he had to be our faithful, unique representative upon the cross. He actually had to be a man to represent man upon the cross. And the virgin birth allows for this unique being to come into place, fully God, fully man. It allows for the incarnation to happen as the Son of God, eternal, steps into human flesh, becoming like us, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself even to death upon a cross. So 
here, in Matthew chapter 1, we begin to understand the glorious work of salvation that God will do through his son and the miraculous way that he has brought it about to accomplish it as only he could. From the very beginning, from the birth of Jesus, we are seeing the purpose of Jesus. The birth cannot be separated from the death of Jesus. From the beginning, Matthew wants us to know this miraculous birth has a purpose to it. Jesus has left the glory of heaven and taken on the humiliating position of a baby in order to save us. To save us. To live the perfect, sinless life. To be righteous perfectly according to the law. To die upon the cross in our place and be raised three days later, giving us the hope of new life and eternal life. How incredible. Now, aren't you glad God works in this way? Aren't you glad that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things? Aren't you glad that God tells us what he is doing so we can know and we can respond in obedience and boldness and faith? And aren't you glad that he did the work that we could not do through his son Jesus, this miraculous baby, come to do a miraculous work of salvation on our behalf. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that God uses ordinary people because that means he can use me. I'm grateful that God fills us in on because there's so much I would miss about the work of salvation he's accomplished on our behalf. I'm grateful that God sent his son to save me because I could not save me. No other human being could save me, but the God-man can save me. That's my prayer that you're grateful too. Let me ask you this question. Do you have this salvation that Jesus came to offer? He alone, he alone can offer this salvation. And we see some of his uniqueness in Matthew chapter 1. Have you trusted in him for salvation? If not, it is my prayer that today would be the day that you would confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you could be saved from your greatest enemy, sin and death, and that you could live an abundant and eternal life now and for all eternity with God as you were created to. In just a minute, we'll have a way for you to, to let us know if you desire to do that so that we can follow up with you as a staff. For the rest of us, if you're sitting in the wake of that salvation, if you're, if you're a recipient of the unique work of God, would you worship him today? He's let you know how he has saved you. He's let you know that you could not save yourself. He's let you know that he sent his one and only son to take on flesh and dwell among us. He's let you know that he has authored this salvation to be with us and we can be with him.
how incredible is this God? Would you worship him today? And then, would you ask, in your own ordinariness, how God can use you in extraordinary ways to further this work that we see beginning here in Matthew chapter 1? Maybe there's someone around you who doesn't know what God has done for them in Christ. And maybe you'll be the one who'll be able to tell them. But Jared, I'm, I'm not somebody special. I don't know how to, to speak things. Man, it's incredible how the Lord takes ordinary and does extraordinary. Just offer your ordinary words and the best way that you know how and see how God can use them to move in the life of someone and bring them to salvation. Wouldn't that be incredible if God would use this church, this ordinary church, to do something extraordinary in the life of Irving, in the state of Texas, and in the world? He's done it before, and he can certainly do it again. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond We think about the surprising beginning to this surprising kingdom, the surprising king who rules over it. As we saw last week, this kingdom may not be what it what we expected, but it is better. It's better. How can God use you? To help grow it. Father, would you help us? Would you help us know how to respond to the, the proclamation of your word? Thank you. For how you use these ordinary people to do something extraordinary. Thank you for recording it. So we could see your work of salvation. And thank you for doing the glorious work of salvation through your son. A plan we could have never devised, but one that we need to be saved. You have saved us, and we are forever grateful, and we will sing your praise now and for all of eternity. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand, church, and respond in song.